0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Evening Jones. Um, I guess uh, for those of you who listen on podcasts, you'll be probably hearing this on Thanksgiving. For those of you who are here on the night before Thanksgiving, good to see you. Oh, nice! somebody there saying that Bo is bundled up. I'm not even so much bundled up as much as I have this weird thing about me where I just like if I walk in a room with a jacket, if you don't take that jacket from me the second that um, I walk in, I'll just sit there with it on the whole time. Uh, I also think that part of that is a function of I'd be keeping a bunch of stuff in my pockets. So you know, you give up the jacket, I got to do a whole transfer of stuff. But I can't have y'all thinking I'm out here punking out with this cold. Nope, can't give you motherfuckers that satisfaction. So I'm gonna just take this jacket off. Um, I uh, it's interesting man. Um, I did a couple of events this week, right? And so, you know, I'm in New York now, but as of right now, I get off work at seven o'clock and, you know, you get off work at seven o'clock and you've been hollering at people for like three hours. You know, you don't really be feeling like going to kick it with people afterward. But I wound up with a couple of things um, I had to do this week, right? I did one. It was a event for um, 30 for 30 podcasts for the, Begin, you know, for this new season that's come out, I did one last night because I wound up, uh, I got a story that went into uh, this year's Best of American Sports Writing compilation. So, uh, the first one we wound up talking about Kaepernick, and I'm on stage with Wesley Morris, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer at the New York Times. And, um, you ever have a moment where you just kind of like halfway forget what you just did or just like whoa i think i made a big one but i wasn't sure that the room had realized that i had made a big one and i felt like i needed to stop and acknowledge it even though i didn't really do anything wrong but it was kind of a top and place situation anyway here's what it happened so we're there and we're having some discussion and wesley made reference to lebron Uh, calling Trump a bum that time on the Twitter where he said, you bum. You remember that? The whole you bum thing. Right. And so, um, hold on. Let me get some more light over here. Oh, wow. I look like I'm snitching right now. (laughs) All right. Yeah, I think that's a little better. Get this more towards it. I got this like super fancy light that this man sold me. It's a different discussion for a different day. Anyway, so, yeah, we're talking about the you bum tweet. And so we're talking about the you bum tweet. And. Um, we were kind of like Wesley was kind of talking about the significance of the challenge, you know, this made like an explicit statement um, about the president of the United States. And I kind of dif- I disagree on that idea and where I kind of disagree on the idea is, I mean, cats is saying things on Twitter about Obama. We wouldn't talk about how powerful that was. Right. Like the reason that well, that's a that's a whole macro level observation that isn't so much tied to this. But tied to this is the fact that um i still contend that the appeal of the lebron you bum tweet is um you got him a bum i believe we talked about it here on this year podcast bum is just one of those funny things to call people so anyway i was making the point on the stage that bum is just a funny thing to call people and I drove the point home in the way that I often drive this point home about calling people bums, which is we don't even call bums bums anymore. And we don't. We call them homeless people. Speaking of homeless people, this event was being held at a bookstore called um, Housing Works, I believe. And um, Housing Works is an organization that is dedicated to uh, fighting two things in particular. One of them is HIV and the other one is homelessness. Right. So I'm in this bookstore that is used to raise money to fight homelessness. And I've just said, we don't even call bums bums anymore. And I mean, you know what I mean by that, right? Like it's got kind of somewhat intentionally crash this device, but you know, I am in the place that is like a charity for homeless people. And I just kind of refer to homeless people as bums. I didn't really refer to homeless people as bums, but I kind of refer to homeless people as bums. And so I said it and I looked at the crowd. And I couldn't quite tell if anybody like fully did the math on what it was. Cause I don't know how many people who like come to that place, ordinarily come to the events that are at that place and like are there because y'all you know, really here to, you know, fight for homelessness and the dignity of homeless people. And then there's a dude on TV on stage saying that we don't call bums, bums no more. Hey anyway, man, sometimes you just got to keep it moving. My daddy told me this. I believe I've told the story here before, but I haven't told the story here before. I will tell the story now to my parents, um, as some friends, and somehow they got into like some off-color conversation that got to be a discussion of ugliness and ugly people, and somebody made the point. or think, but somebody made the point. I think my dad made the point that some people are just ugly in a way they can't do nothing about, and um. I'm just going to throw a name out here like Mary Johnson, right? Because I don't want to like put it out there, but let's just say that it's like a Mary Johnson, right? If you imagine Mary Johnson is famous, Mary Johnson. Ooh, boy, Mary Johnson is so ugly and he's going and he's noticing that he's getting a little awkward in the room and he can't understand why. And he looks at his friend, his friend looks at him and his friend is sitting next to his wife. And he's like, people always tell my wife how much she look like Mary Johnson. <laughs> Woo! Woo! Yeah, it sounds like an awkward situation, right? And so I have asked my father this story many, many times because I just think that is absolutely hilarious. And I always ask him the same question. I always say, so, like, what did you do next? And I always ask him that because, you know, sometimes you ask a person the same story three times. You get, like, three three different things on the details. But every time I've asked him what he did in that moment, um, he said the same thing. He was like, yo, I just started talking about something else. Was like, ain't no, ain't no need for us to like sit here and revel in this moment for who, for what. Um, anyway, Tuesday it was a reading, I can't remember where it was, it was down the street from the bitter end, but anyway, um, did a reading. It was read, I mean, it was in theory, called a reading, but nobody read anything. about the best of American sports writing, I mean, you know, but for the book for the best of American sports writing, and I was there with a woman named Terry Thompson and a gentleman named Luke Cyphers they had written the story for Bleacher Report they made it in the compilation by Matt Howard Bryant uh, he edited the book was moderating it and you know this one was kind of cool I've never won an award for writing before ever in my life never I mean and, and I think for those of you who follow me or have followed me for a while you know me and my confidence as writer like I don't I think I am capable of writing great things. I do not think I am a great writer. I think I'm a good writer, uh, maybe even very good, but I don't, I don't, like the way I feel about myself as a radio host, for example, is not the same as it is with a writer. I just, the confidence is just a a different type. I guess it's an absence of sorts. Um, And yeah, like I got what in effect was a writing award. And so that was kind of cool um so you know it's a little spot we go we do the sit on stage and talk about it thing or whatever it is and it was very very interesting because my brother and my sister-in-law came and they were sitting at a table and they wound up um sitting next to these two gentlemen they were probably listening right now one's name was tim one's name was uh tomas and they were sitting there and it was kind of funny because there's a like intermission of sorts and my brother's like hey man you got to come meet these guys like they're really big fans you gotta you gotta come meet them and you know everybody knows I'm like a little bit uncomfortable with these things, but I, you know, I do my deep breath and I get in the mode of going to do it or whatever it was. And it was wild because for my brother and sister-in-law, like they were like, so like intimately tickled that somebody could be like a big fan in such a way. But the reason that I mentioned this is my sister-in-law actually, and you know, my sister-in-law is a white woman and she walked away from having a conversation with these guys. And she was like, you know, this like kind of gives me hope about like the direction of where the world might go. And so for her, it was like the ostensible cognitive dissonance of, you know, these two young white dudes. And, you know, they're digging these things that we're here talking about and kind of taking in some of the ideas and recontextualizing life based on some things that they may not have understood um before um but like i really appreciated the fact that those cats came out there and i feel that one thing that always i suppose i don't know it frustrates me um i think that there is a perception among a certain number of people that there are certain folks that absolutely in no way could ever possibly like enjoy like what it is that we do and how we kick it over here. And I have fought vehemently in my career in various ways to try to make it clear to people like, no, nah, man, you're a little too worried about this. I think that people have the capacity to get on board with something that they enjoy simply because they enjoy it. And some of this nonsense that you talk about, it's not really getting in the way as much as you think it does. And so I, it, it makes me feel good when I meet people who legitimately like appreciate the work that I'm doing, like liking it is one thing, but there's kind of another level of appreciation. And I find that by and large, when I come across people in public, the ones who feel compelled to speak are typically people. It's not just, Oh, I recognize this person on television. It's like typically people with a real appreciation for like what is ultimately produced. And so like, I thank everybody that came out because they wanted to come check me out. But I really, I really think, people and their general willingness to take this in in a very broad sort of way. You know, because you don't have to listen to anybody. I mean, it's one thing to be like you listen to somebody's podcast or listen to their show or whatever it is, but that don't mean you're like listening to that person. And that's not something that anybody necessarily is required to do. And I appreciate anybody who makes the decision that the things that I'm saying are things that they think are worthy of not just consumption, but consideration. And so Nah, that was cool, man. Like, I was sitting on stage. It was kind of crazy. Uh, Luke Cypher said that, you know, he's in the uh, he's in the best American sports writing. He looks at, like, the people there that he has, like, the utmost respect for his writers. And he said he showed it to my, his brother. And he said his brother said, and I quote, fuck that. Bo Jones is in there. And, of course, you know, I'm sitting on stage, like, ducking my head down and, like, smiling and terribly embarrassed and everything else. But do you realize how insane it is to be the idea that that's somebody's reaction? You know, like... That's kind of nuts. And I guess for me, also being around that is kind of reassuring in a sort of way because, like, once you, it was one thing when I was doing this, like local radio and doing this with SCORE and SB Nation and things like that. Like, it was really like you're building small communities, you know, relatively speaking, small communities in that sort of way. It's hard to maintain that sort of appeal when you're working for the mothership, right? Like, when you're working for the people who are blasting this content out for the most people is. You deal with a lot of nonsense along the way, you know, just because you're just dealing with so many people. But um, what I like always worry about is how tight knit of a group that you can put together in such a place. Like you're going to have a lot of casual fans, but the, you know, the satisfaction for me is with people with whom we like really closely relate. Like there's a certain intimacy that I enjoyed about the work that I was doing before. And that I've always been worried that that intimacy couldn't, you know, can you make it carry over when you're doing this for like the big capitalist machine? And I guess in some ways I, it is very helpful for me and very much appreciated when I do wind up in situations where it is made clear to me that people are and can in fact um right get it in that way that it can still be close you know that it can still be as such so no, that was that was a real cool like a little event to go to so there we go anyway i try to give you like, little stories uh you know from the life that i live typically it's more mundane things than that but anyway let us move on to your questions as someone who conducts interviews yourself, have you ever had someone take control of an interview the way Lavar did on CNN? How do you handle that? Do you try to get control back or just let them run with it? So here's the thing though, that I think I would argue about the LeVar interview with Chris Cuomo on CNN. LeVar took over that interview, but, I don't think he had any choice other than to take control of the interview. And the reason I say I don't feel like he had any choice other than take over the interview was the interview wasn't an interview. Like that dude didn't have any sort of strategy in how it was that he was going to deal with LeVar Ball. He went out there entirely to bait him. Like, go back and watch that. Let me know if there was any worthwhile question that Chris Cuomo tried to ask. That Levar was unwilling to ask. He walked in the door with the whole thing about, well, why don't you just say thank you to the president? But that's all he had. The only thing he had was, why don't you just say, no, why don't you just say thank you to the president? Here's a question that Chris Cuomo didn't ask in that interview. That would have been a very helpful one to ask, given what everything was. I do not believe, and you let me know if I'm wrong here, at any point that Chris Cuomo. Specifically asked what LeVar Ball knew about the circumstances surrounding the resolution of his son's case. Because it seemed to be very clear to me that LeVar knew what went down, that it had been talked to, it had been relayed to him who it was that needed to be talked to, who it was who had been spoken to. I don't recall Chris, Chris Cuomo ever trying to get to the bottom of this. He took the word of Donald Trump saying that Trump was the one who made it happen and did not attempt to explore it. Now, given that Chris Cuomo was not exactly the biggest Donald Trump fan in the world, it is difficult to believe that he just took Donald Trump's word for it unless there's a whole other thing at play that I don't feel like talking about at this very moment. But if he's not so much a Trump guy, then I don't think that he's just taking Trump's word for it which then tells me that the whole reason that he walked in there was to try to play a gotcha game. Why don't you just say thank you? Why don't you just say thank you? And what he thought he was going to get was some spectacular level of bombast that was going to wind up being the enduring memory of the interview. And that wasn't what happened. What he got was not LeVar Ball in the big baller brand T-shirt. He got LeVar Ball in shirt. In a like pressed shirt. He didn't get LeVar Ball showing up on somebody's set. He got LeVar Ball sitting in his own living room. Right. So once it became clear that the interview was really just an attempt to bait LeVar, what choice did LeVar have other than to take it over? Because the guy that was in charge of the interview wanted the clown show. The What stopped it from being a clown show was actually LeVar. Now, I remember I got in like after 10 that night. It was one of those things I went to. So I got in after and asked people it was ridiculous, and they said it was already ridiculous. And then I watched it, and I was like, yo, but the ridiculous person is not Lavar. The ridiculous person is Cuomo. Then at the end, LeVar was like, oh, okay, I got you. Now I'm just about to have fun with it. But no, they thought they were dealing with somebody who wasn't that bright. They thought they were dealing with somebody that could be easily manipulated. That's what they thought they had. And like CNN is generally a bunch of crosstalk. So they thought they were going to reproduce that. Man, Lavar wasn't going for that. You know why Lavar wasn't going for that? In part, number one, Lavar Ball is not about to get out here talking crazy about the president. He can't win there. He can't win there. That's the first part of it. The other part of it was. You think he was going to give them the satisfaction of playing him? LeVar been playing everybody that's put him on TV since this whole thing started. You thought, what, Chris Cuomo was going to play LeVar? No, 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 no. And I also think that people just walked in with the inclination, the whole idea of the interview was ridiculous, except it wasn't. I don't think there's anybody that could wind up in a public spat with the president who isn't going to wind up being on TV if they're willing to do it. No, it made sense that he winds up there. And it ties into a larger narrative. And it's interesting because the larger narrative part is stuff that LeVar didn't go for. You also know LeVar ain't saying nothing about race, huh? You peeped that? You peeped that? mm They thought they had a sucker on the line. And they didn't. And they did not. And so I don't think that LeVar taking it over was quite like a like, – it wasn't a gangster move in that way. It was just kind of fun to watch. Now, I will say this, though. If someone decides that they are going to wrestle control of the interview, how you respond to it depends entirely on what the point of the interview was. So for Chris Cuomo, for example, if he were really trying to get some answers, then he would have needed to find a way to bring it back. But since he wasn't really trying to get some answers, he needed to just let LeVar go. But the problem was he couldn't really let LeVar go because LeVar actually wasn't going that far. Crazy, right? Appreciate the question. Let's see what we got here. Any advice for someone bringing home their partner who is from a different race tomorrow? In my case, she's Latino, so it shouldn't be a 100% shot. But you never know what could go down. Now, the problem, um, Eric, with you raising this question is I don't know what race you are. I don't know what house it is that you are bringing this person into. Um, anyway, no, I don't actually have any advice for you at all on that. Like zero. I have no idea what you're supposed to do. You know your parents. You know your family. I don't know them. Hey, man, you know if you send in, you know if you sending her in there on a bad mission or not. Well, actually, how about this one? You say, have you told them this? Now, you say it shouldn't be a shock. It shouldn't be a surprise. I figured that would have come up in the discussion. You ain't told them? Because I feel like if you ain't told them, you got a reason why you ain't told them. Anyway, appreciate the question. Let me see what we got here. Who knew mac and cheese was a two America's moment? Yo, this is a great question because if you've been paying attention on the Twitter, somehow macaroni and cheese has become polarizing. I, I, so here's the thing, right? With the macaroni and cheese. Apparently, no, it's not even apparently because people are writing think pieces about this stuff too. Like I saw something, I didn't actually read it because I don't care enough. But it was something about how macaroni and cheese is like the holy grail of like the holiday meal experience. That that's like the most trusted job is the macaroni and cheese. And, you know, that that's that's the black folks thing that whoever does the macaroni and cheese is the person who, you know, gets it the most or whatever. Like I saw it going that far. And well, I mean. I was just looking at it and thinking and just feeling like, yo, was this all just really an offshoot of the whole black people don't think white people season their food? Right. Like, is that where we're coming from? And let me, let me run something by you right fast. I'm about to put this link um, in the chat room here. This is from my Instagram because you know, they open a whole foods in Harlem. Right. So I went to the whole foods um, and I was just looking past the hot bar. Man, listen, I want you to get a look at this macaroni and cheese that was at the hot bar. I just put it in the chat room. It should pop up on your screen any second now. I want you to look at that link to that macaroni and cheese that I put there, and you tell me if you see what I see, because I spy mayonnaise. Like, I feel like they made that macaroni and cheese with mayonnaise. I could be wrong here, but that is the first time that I had ever truly considered that there is some sort of cultural divide on macaroni and cheese. Now, again, I think we've known for a while that there's been some level of cultural divide when it comes to attitudes about seasoning foods. And there are attitudes about seasoning foods that are all across all kinds of ethnicities. It's not just a black-white divide. Our Latino brothers and sisters season their food differently than everybody at age. Everybody got their different ways of seasoning their food. Our African brothers, man, they ain't never scared. Hey, they, they, they got, they got spices for, for you, homie. They got them right. So anyway, I watched the macaroni and cheese thing happen. And I mean, this is just something that you always have to remember. Some people grew up in houses where nobody could cook. They don't know any better. They think good food is a treat that you get when you go to a restaurant, except they don't know it. They go to mediocre restaurants because they don't know any better. There's a lot of people out here who just don't know any better. I'd also like to know, by the way, just as a thought, I actually believe that uh, the great cultural division comes from one deal number one dish rather on Thanksgiving. And it's not a dish that's at both tables. And I'm not talking about pumpkin pie versus sweet potato pie. I'm talking about this notion of green bean casserole. I only hear white people talk about green bean casserole. Maybe there's some black people here who have green bean casserole at their house, but I ain't never heard nobody talk about having no green bean casserole that wasn't white. I don't know how green bean casserole works. I don't know. But I mean, if you've been to your black people's house and somebody had the green bean casserole, I've never heard of it. I've never seen it, but I find almost across the board. You talk to white people about what's going to be there at the Thanksgiving dinner at green bean casserole going to be there. I got no shade to that. I ain't dissing them. Just saying it don't really come up with my folk in that same way. At least as far as I can tell. Yeah, that's what I got. But yeah, I feel like, This is just a thought for you, by the way, on the levels of division in America. How many of you have had Thanksgiving dinner with someone of a different race who was not sleeping with another of the attendees? This is just a thought. Christmas is probably more accurate because Thanksgiving people wind up in all kinds of spots. But just think about that for a second. Has that ever happened? Because not everybody's with family. People were friends all the time. Just thought, observation. Appreciate the question. Let me see what else we got here. Oh, a lot of y'all, by the way, just like to come in here and uh, watch and don't be asking no questions. Stop being greedy. You agree with Charlemagne that today's rappers are simply rapping with Three Six Mafia rapped about and people need to stop hating. It isn't anything different. I mean, yeah, I guess I've seen this for 21 seconds. What is it? We I forget who it was. But we got, like, I think Pete Rock was one. We got the old hits that's talking about basically that hip-hop of this era is what they call a user music. That is just music about using drugs. Um, and, you know, we need to stop that. You know, people out here getting strung out and stuff. Now, I do think we need to be honest. That is a bit of a change. And it's not to say that there's never been anybody – Who was, um, all right, that's the best way to put this. Okay. When I was a kid, you didn't have that many people rapping about using drugs, but you did have a lot of people rapping about selling drugs. I do feel like the user to dealer ratio in rap has skewed quite a bit. Is that fair? Because I do think that's fair to say. Now, is the music for users? Well, I mean, Cypress Hill has an entire catalog that is for weed smokers, for example. The difference is these young boys, they out here using like drugs. Now, I think it's worth keeping in mind that the 1980s involved people using drugs. But how many people were really rapping about using cocaine? You know, like we do have a lot more people out here that are talking about using pills and stuff like that. And that is a different game. And I don't know enough about like the recreational pill using life to have understanding like what it is or what the pills are that people are using. But hey, man, as long as people play music in clubs, folks are going to make music for the people in clubs. As long as people are using these drugs in clubs, people are going to make music. For those people, it is going to be a reflection of the times, but I mean, it's a reflection of times, I guess, in a different way. Now, like I saw the T.I. thing talking about, do you remember album called The Chronic? And I think, I mean, yes, but I think it's kind of disingenuous to compare, you know, cats talking about reefer to uh, people talking about these pills. I do think that it is a little bit different there. You know. But no, I mean, people are going to make music for consumers. And one thing that people like to do very often when they use drugs is they like to listen to music. People have been making music for drinkers too. And that's the one that's probably tearing most shit apart than anything else. Right. So yeah, I do think that there's a degree of like old headism that is going on here and that the old heads are talking they noise about what it is that they talk. I do believe that there is an element of that, but I don't get all bent on shape about those things. Hold on one second. That's the parents call. Just got to make sure everything was okay. Um, so yeah, there's that. Appreciate the question. See what else we got here. Is there anything that could possibly motivate you to brave a black Friday crowd in this day and age? Now I really don't know it. Like the last time I did a black Friday thing, I don't remember. I have no idea the last time I did anything black Friday oriented related. I bet that is a horrible time to try to hail a cab by the way. But yeah, I don't, uh, Here's what I will say, though, about whether or not there's, you know, anything that could get me out here to a Black Friday crowd. Um, there are certain things that I'm going to buy that, shall we say, are not available at Target. And I am very curious to know. I just have no idea. And I'm probably not curious enough to go check this out myself. But like at the higher end places, how crack it is, right? Like at the bougie places. Are they wilding out like they are at the Walmart and the Target? I have no idea. Is there an increased level of security at these places? I have no idea. Like, I don't know. Like, does the Saks on Fifth Avenue um, have door busters? Are they opening at midnight? I'm asking. I really have no idea. Like uh, Like, are the people that are charged up in that way really, really, like, really bought it as such? No, I ain't really doing. I do think, though, they thinned out the Black Friday crowd. I do think that it became a matter of, um, you know, demand changes the game up. And I think there's something to these places like opening Thanksgiving or opening at midnight or whatever it is to allow the crowd different options of when to go, like not everybody showing up at the same time. I think that that probably has done good things to stop some of these crazy scenes because I think also for the stores – These scenes were bad business for them. Like they weren't getting anything out of this. I think Nike eventually learned that, that it went from like, oh, we got lines of people waiting on our shoes. The shoes look like they're in such high demand. Oh, my gosh, you're a bunch of savages, right? And also it flipped up. Appreciate the question. Somebody says online shopping has changed the game. Alan. yeah, I mean, that's cool, but they're still doing things to compete with that. It hadn't changed the game completely for the segment of people who really are trying to get out there on day one. Like, you got to be kind of body with your gangster to do that. Hey, man, who am I kidding? I'm tired. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for joining us here on The Evening Jones. We try to do this thing here about once a week. I want you all to have a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving. My man, Lance Gilliam, handles everything behind the scenes. Of course, thank you to him. Remember, um, if you can't watch The Evening Jones Live, subscribe to the iTunes store. Subscribe at Stitcher Radio. Check us out at SoundCloud. Also at the Google Play Store. I think, oh, we'll see you next week. I'm a little busy, but I'm going to try to talk to you. Take it easy.